0: I'd like to introduce our first speaker, Dr. Zoe Drellos. I have actually been trying to get her here for some time because I think, like many of us, I have uh, tried to recommend things for products for my patients. So they're very specific about wanting to know about different cosmetics and soaps and shampoos. And and I was not flippant about it, but I was always somewhat well, just go get this or this, when I was first trained and still, until I started reading some of her uh, articles and, and uh, read uh, some of her books. And then I realized that what a, a magnificent difference there is. And, and, and it's really eye-opening when you go to a Target or a CVS, a Walmart, a Walgreens, and walk down the cosmetic aisle, because there's not just one anymore, and they're about a mile long. And just with acne products, it's huge. Um, So even for me, it's confusing. For a patient, it has to be just ultra confusing. Uh, Dr. Zoe Drelos uh, is practicing board-certified dermatologist and a fellow of, of the American Academy of Dermatology with a research interest in cosmetics, toiletries, and biologically active skin medications. She is in solo private practice in High Point, North Carolina and a consulting professor of dermatology at Duke University. In 1988, she founded Dermatology Consulting Services to provide education, develop formulations, and conduct clinical trials in association with industry. Prior to pursuing a medical career, Dr. Drellis completed an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering and was elected a Rhodes Scholar a member of um, Sigma Xi Research Honorary Honorary and Alpha Omega Alpha Medical Honorary she is author of textbooks Cosmetics and Dermatology and Hair Cosmetics as well as an editor of Cosmeceuticals now it's in now in its second edition and is translated into five languages she has contributed chapters to 32 textbooks, served as the principal investigator in 274 studies, written 270 published papers, serves on eight journal editorial boards, functions as the editorial and chief or editor-in-chief of the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology. She was a past member of the board of directors of the American Academy of Dermatology and the American Society of Dermatologic Surgery. She is presently serving on the Council for Scientific Affairs for the Society of Cosmetic Chemists, and recently she received a Lifetime Achievement Award for her research in Health and, be- in the health and Beauty, in, um, or from Health and Beauty America, and the Derm Arts Award for her contribution to the practice of dermatology. Please help me welcome Dr. Zoe Draelis.
1: Good morning. We're going to talk a little bit today about walking down the cosmetic aisle, not wandering and getting lost, but walking with direction. And I hope by the end of this morning's presentation that you'll have a little better idea of what constitutes cleansers, what constitutes moisturizers, a little bit about new ideas and sunscreens, and finally, we'll tackle the anti-aging arena. I'm going to try and speak for about 50 minutes, give you about 10 minutes for questions and answers. Rather than talking product by product or ingredient by ingredient, because I don't have six hours, I only have 50 minutes, I thought we would talk about concepts. Now, I do need to tell you that I do have some disclosures. I am going to name specific products as examples of product categories. These are not product endorsements. We're going to talk about everybody's products. But I do research for everybody, so I would like to disclose that these are my relevant conflicts as of this time. I either have research or I have consultancies with these companies in the beauty arena. So when you think about maneuvering the cosmetic aisle, we really need to be focused. There are so many products out there, but the main categories that I'd like to discuss with you are cleansers. How do cleansers really work and what is the difference? Because the most impactful activity that anyone does on a daily basis to their skin from a dermatologic standpoint has to be cleansing. The second most important impactful activity would have to be moisturization. So what effect do moisturizers have on skin function? Then from there, we need to talk a little bit about sunscreen, because after you moisturize, you put your sunscreen on. And we need to look at that very important activity, because this is really what prevents photoaging, skin cancer, and photosensitive skin diseases. And then finally, we're going to tackle the anti-aging care arena, talking a little bit about where the new trends are in anti-aging ingredients. So with that, let's get started by talking about skin cleansing. Well, before you can really talk about cleansing the skin, you need to know what normal skin looks like. Well, we all know what normal skin looks like. We're looking at each other. But I don't mean that. I mean on an ultra level because that really is where cleansing has its impact. So, if you look here, what you see is a very well-organized lipid bilayer. You see this very dark, it almost looks like a sandwich cookie, a dark layer, light layer, dark layer, light layer. The very light layer is basically the, the, the proteins, the skin cells, and then the lipids in there are the dark layer, and these lipids are really the integrity of the skin. They're what hold the skin together, they're what prevent disease, they're what make skin beautiful. When you remove these lipid bilayers, you cause skin damage. And what is the most important thing that removes those lipid bilayers? Skin cleansing. So what really is cleansing? When patients come in and tell you, how should I wash my face? I mean, that's a real simple answer, right? No. Extremely complex. So what skin cleansing really is, is it's the chemical interaction between a surfactant, that's the technical name for a soap, with the skin surface combined with physical rubbing. It is the interaction of the chemical aspect of the cleanser and the physical aspect of how you rub it over your face and with what you rub it over your face that creates cleansing. So a complete discussion of cleansers involves not only what the soap is, or the cleanser is, but also how you use it. So, when we think about cleansing, we have to ask ourselves what is a cleanser supposed to do? Well, it's supposed to remove sebum, it's supposed to remove apocrine and acrine secretions, it's supposed to remove environmental dirt, it's supposed to remove bacterial and fungal elements as well as yeast to maintain the normal biofilm over the skin surface, it's supposed to remove desquamating corneocytes or exfoliate the skin, and then finally, it's supposed to remove anything you put on your skin, whether that's medications, cosmetics, or skincare products. But more importantly, for the health of the skin, what should the cleanser not remove? Because if you remove these things, that's where you see atopic dermatitis get worse. That's where you see xerotic eczema. That's where you see people with horrible eyelid dermatitis. So basically, cleansing should not remove those important intercellular lipids that I showed you a picture of earlier, the viable epidermis. In other words, the brick and mortar organization of of the skin must be preserved. So, If you remember that nice orderly sandwich cookie type look that I showed you earlier of the lipids in place between the skin cells, if you look here, what you see are the skin cells with these widened intercellular spaces. This is what happens when you use soap that removes too much of the intercellular lipids. This is all those skin diseases I mentioned. This is what the skin looks like with atopic dermatitis, cirrhotic eczema, eyelid dermatitis, All of these damage the intracellular lipids. So when a patient comes in and tells you how should I clean my face, the correct answer is don't remove the intracellular lipids. But you can not tell your patient that because they won't know what you're talking about. So what you really have to do is you have to make specific cleanser recommendations based on their skin needs. So if you look at the basic cleanser types, I don't know how many of you have ever walked down the cleansing aisle. There are at least 250 cleansers in the average Walmart superstore. Which one should your patient use? Well, it's not so complicated. There are only four types of cleansers, and every cleanser in the marketplace is a variant of those four types. You have your true soaps, like Grandma used to make in the backyard. You have your modern soaps that are called syndets. You have your combination bars that have syndet and soap, in it, called a calm bar, And then you have the new introduction of all the liquid cleansers, which may or may not be medicated. So what really is a soap? A true soap is created by chemically reacting a fat with an alkali to produce a fatty acid with detergent properties. Now that may not mean much to you, but when I say ivory soap, you know what I'm talking about. Ivory happens to be, Ivory and Cashmere Bouquet are the only two real soaps left in the marketplace. Why? Because they are very deep cleansing products and because consumers have come to expect more. They have a pH between 9 and 10, and the problem with true soaps is they alkalinize the skin. How many of you got out of the shower this morning and your skin felt kind of tight? That's alkalization of your skin. That is the first stage of skin disease that is the first step towards damage of the intercellular lipids. How many of you then noticed when you got out of the shower with that tight feeling that it went away after about 15 to 20 minutes? It's because you all have normal skin. And the biofilm in your skin is re-acidifying your skin, bringing it back to a neutral pH somewhere around 5.2, and the tightness goes away. How many of your patients come in and tell you, you know, I really like that squeaky feel, that tight feeling when I get out of the shower. I feel like I'm clean. That is the first step of barrier damage. That squeaky feel clean is the corneocytes lifting up, and the squeaky feeling that you get is the friction as your hand rubs over the skin surface. That tight feeling is alkalization of the skin. Now, in you who have normal skin, you'll regain that acid mantle in about 20 minutes. But what about the atopic? The atopic will take hours for their pH to return back to neutral, and that's the reason why True Soaps are so damaging in people with skin disease. They very efficiently remove sebum, but also they remove intracellular lipids. For someone that has very oily skin, True Soaps are wonderful. They remove sebum. They're excellent in very oily, complected acne patients, but they're not so good in individuals with eczema skin disease which led to the development of the next new basic cleanser category known as syndets. SIND stands for synthetic and the D stands for detergents. That's where you get a syndet. It's a synthetic detergent. Grandma doesn't make these in her backyard. They're not made out of lye. The basic ingredient M is sodium cocoil isethionate. This is Dove soap. This is all the beauty bars. This is Cetaphil bar. This is Basis bar. This is Olay bar. These are the bars that claim to be sensitive skin bars. These are the bars that claim to be moisturizing bar soaps. However, that's a misnomer. No soap can moisturize the skin. It can just leave behind more of the natural intracellular lipids. These products have a pH between 5.5 and 7, and that is closer to the neutral pH of the skin, somewhere between 5.2 and 5.4. Patients will tell you that when they use a soap like Dove soap, their skin feels slimy afterwards and they want to know if there's some soap residue that's left behind. There is no soap residue left behind. That slimy feel is the normal skin interface, that's the intact intracellular lipids, that's the lack of curling of the corneocytes, and that's normal healthy skin when you exit the bath. And what's so intriguing about all this is what patients complain about as being abnormal is really normal healthy skin. We have been so conditioned to think you got to feel tight and dry when you leave the shower because of the way soaps used to be formulated that now patients equate that feeling with clean skin. Very, very interesting. Now, Calm Bars combine some synthetic detergents with True Soaps. These are all of the deodorant bars on the market. This is Life Boy, This is Coast. This is Irish Spring. This is Dial Soap. And what these do is they put a little bit of soap in there to give you that tight feeling, but they're not totally soap. They have synthetic detergents in there, so they don't excessively remove the intercellular lipids. As such, you can see they have a pH kind of in between true soaps and synthets, at about seven to nine. They still leave you with that fabulous tight feeling they make you feel like you're clean but they don't over-dry the skin. Yet in patients with skin disease, all of these bars I've mentioned are not good because again they have a pH between 7 and 9, they alkalinize the skin, because these products have an antibacterial, and antibacterial is triclosan, triclosan is very irritating to the skin. So these products are not good for patients with eczematous skin disease. These products are best for individuals with frequent recurrent MRSA infections, patients afflicted with impetigo, patients who work in contaminated environments, individuals who have facial acne or acne on the chest and the back. These are products that are good for people with normal to oily skin. True soaps are good for people with oily skin, and syndets are good for people with normal to dry skin. There you have it. Every soap on the entire market is a variation of that. Now, the newest development in the marketplace has been the liquid cleanser or the body wash. And you may notice that these products are slowly, slowly dominating the marketplace. The number one selling cleanser in Europe and around the world is a body wash. Only in the United States are bar soaps still the dominant cleanser type. Now, what a cleanser has to do is it has to remove the dirt, the sebum, the bacteria from your skin, and it has to rinse totally cleanly, because if you leave any soap residue behind, you get irritation. That's the reason why body washes have become popular, because within a body wash, you can put an ingredient called a sequestering agent that binds to any minerals in the water and washes it down the drain. That's the reason why you shouldn't wash your hair with with soap. You should wash it with shampoo, because otherwise that soap scum sticks to the hair and can cause not only dull, lifeless hair, but also exacerbate seborrheic dermatitis. So liquid cleansers offer the advantage of being able to thoroughly cleanse in waters of all hardnesses and waters of all types. But furthermore, what a moisturizing body wash cleanser can do is it has two phases. It has a liquid phase, that has water-soluble ingredients in it within a second liquid phase that has oil-soluble ingredients in it. The oil-soluble and water-soluble phases are held together with an emulsifier that emulsifies these oil-soluble ingredients into the water-soluble phase. What is an emulsifier? It's a detergent or a soap. So every oil and water emulsion, or water and oil emulsion, has soap in it. And interestingly enough, in facial foundations and moisturizers, that is the single most important cause of irritant contact dermatitis. Because in cosmetic formulation, we use soaps to keep the water and oily, soluble ingredients together in the bottle. But what's most important in a moisturizing cleanser is that we use the oily phase to moisturize the skin, and we use the water phase to clean the skin, and that is why body washes are useful in dermatology. What I'd like to draw your attention to here is this little cartoon. Imagine that the little droplets there are oil, and imagine that the little lines are soap. When you use a body wash, you have to use it on a puff, one of those little puffy things. And the reason you do that is that breaks down the emulsion, puts a lot of air and a lot of water into a little tiny dab of body wash, and allows it to foam and suds. If you don't use it on a puff with a lot of surface area, the body wash will not foam. So you foam up your body wash, you step out of the water, and you wash yourself. During that phase, the concentration of body wash is high, and the concentration of water is low. That's when the cleansing occurs. Then you step back into the water, you let the water rinse. During that phase, you have a very high concentration of water and a very low concentration of body wash. That's when the petrolatine, the dimethicone, the soybean oil deposit on the skin and the dirt is rinsed away. So what body washes allow is two-step cleansing. They're just like conditioning shampoos that clean and condition at the same time. It cleans during the high body wash, low water concentration phase, and it moisturizes during the low body wash, high concentration phase. So most people don't think of cleansing in two steps, but it actually occurs in two steps. First you put it on, then you rinse it off. And that's how the new body washes can moisturize and cleanse at the same time. Now you may ask, why are there body washes for dry skin, body washes for normal skin, body washes for oily skin? Well the reason is, is that you can vary the amount of moisturizer you leave behind on the skin. So for example, the eczema care or advanced care product by Aveeno that you may have seen, that's the blue topped cleanser, Olay body wash complete, Olay ribbons, all of those are body washes that work with this type of technology. So basically what happens is you make your emulsion like we talked about, but in a product designed for individuals with very dry skin, you use very, very large droplets of petrolatum and soybean oil so that when you leave behind the product in the rinse phase, you leave larger droplets and proportionally more of the body surface area is covered. In medium depositing products you can see the droplets are smaller and because the droplets are smaller you leave behind less dimethicone, soybean oil and petrolatum. So this is how with a body wash you can take the same formulation because if you look at the ingredients for normal oily and dry skin you'll notice they're virtually identical. It's not the difference in the ingredients it's the size of the droplet and the size of the droplet determines how much moisturization you leave behind. And that's how come you can have products for people with very, very oily skin that are still in the body wash category where you leave just behind a smidgen of dimethicone and then you have advanced eczema care products where you leave behind a lot. And that is how the new generation of of moisturizing cleansers know the difference. So basically when you have a high surfactant, low skin conditioner, you have a body wash emulsion. But what about the, the in-shower body moisturizers? Have you wondered about those, the lotions you put on in the, in the shower? Well, the way those work is you have a very low concentration of soap and a very high concentration of soybean oil, dimethicone, and petrolatum. So you put it on, the soap rinses away, and leaves behind mostly soybean oil, petrolatum, and dimethicone. This is the way a conditioner on the hair also works. So a body wash is like a conditioning shampoo and what's called a moisture rinse or an in-shower body lotion is like a hair conditioner. The technologies, the ingredients are identical. Basically, it's an adaptation of hair technology into the skin cleansing arena. So what are the new skin cleansing concepts? Well, you can moisturize and cleanse simultaneously. Basically, a body wash is an emulsion within an emulsion, and these can be used as adjuvant therapy in individuals who have extremely dry skin but who insist on bathing every day. What a body wash allows them to do is bathe more frequently and incur less skin damage. Selecting the proper cleanser for your patient is key to success in treating skin disease. So with that, let's move on to moisturizers and talk a little bit. Again, we're going to talk about that skin lipid layer that we talked about earlier. But now, instead of focusing on removing things, we're going to focus on putting things back. Because, really, the reason you need a moisturizer is because the cleanser worked too well. So if you look at the skin, what you see is these lipids here in between the rich corneocyte, which is made of protein. You have your ordered epidermal lipids, but what you're looking at when you're moisturizing is you're not looking at removal of the lipids. You're looking at coating the skin surface with substances to create an environment for healing. So if you look right here, this is a picture of xerotic skin, and again you see the absence of these organized lipid bilayers. You see replacement of this amorphous matrix, and what you really want to see is restoration of that same sandwich cookie appearance that I began my talk with. So we need then to ask ourselves, what really is a moisturizer supposed to do? Well, it's supposed to repair the skin barrier. And the skin barrier is composed of corneocytes, intracellular lipids, surface lipids, including sebum. And this is a waterproof layer that waterproofs our body and separates us from the environment. But it's also the thing that gives us beauty. Because when people look at you and, gosh, you look great today, what are they assessing? They really should be telling you, you know, your skin barrier is just perfect. But somehow that doesn't have the same cachet. So, patients and beauty editors and magazine writers, one of the biggest questions they ask me is, how can I moisturize my skin? Well, I think it's first important to look at it and say, how can you not moisturize your skin? Well, spraying water on your skin does not moisturize it. It dries it out. Drinking eight glasses of water a day will keep you close to the toilet, but will not moisturize your skin. You can't lay wet towels on your skin in a spa or sauna. That dries out your skin. You can't cover it with a plastic wrap. That only works temporarily. And you can't sit in a high humidity condition like the rain and expect for your skin to get moisturized. So now, the million dollar question is, how can you moisturize your skin? I mean, it must be very sophisticated because while well, there may be 200 soaps, there's well over a 1,000 moisturizers. Well, I'm going to share with you the secret. The way you moisturize your skin is that skin moisturization increases with improved barrier function. The second way is skin moisturization increases with improved barrier function. And the final way that you can moisturize your skin is that skin moisturization increases with improved barrier function. There is only one way to moisturize the skin, and that is by restoring the barrier to normal. So what really is the normal water content of the skin? You know, if you have great moisturized skin, how much water do you have in your skin? Well, it's about 30%, give or take. Too much water, as you know, creates maceration. That's what creates intertrigo. Too little water, well, we know what that causes. That causes examined skin diseases. When people say you can moisturize your skin from the outside, equilibrium of skin moisturization, meaning that no water is being lost from your skin to the environment, occurs at an ambient humidity of 70%. It ain't gonna happen here in Phoenix, Arizona. The normal humidity in conditioned environments is somewhere around 20 to 40%. So the real question is, is why doesn't all of our water evaporate from our bodies into the atmosphere? Well, it does if you have skin disease, and that's why people with eczema have the most horrible itching, stinging, burning you've ever felt in your life. Basically, what's happening is the water is exiting the skin through the defective barrier going into the environment. They're moisturizing the environment and raising the ambient humidity of the room, but their skin is cracking, and as it fissures and cracks, it exposes the nerve endings. Those viable nerve endings of the epidermis are all of a sudden firing. That's the itch, which makes them scratch, which makes them damage the barrier more, which makes them itch more, which makes them scratch more, and you know the end of that story. So, the real question is, how then can you make a man-made barrier to temporarily halt transepidermal water loss, which is the word we use for water going from the body to the environment? Because until that skin barrier is restored, the skin disease will not abate. Topical corticosteroids, which are the mainstay of treatment in of skin disease, only rid the inflammation they do not repair the barrier. And this is why moisturizers are so important. So, how do moisturizers work? Well, when the skin is damaged, water is lost from the skin to the environment. That transepidermal water loss is the signal for barrier repair. Once water is being lost, there's a tremendous burst of cholesterol synthesis, of ceramide synthesis, and of synthesis of all the substances that make the intercellular lipids. So the body immediately knows it must heal. So the million dollar question is, what is the best moisturizer to allow transepidermal water loss to occur and to heal the skin? Well, it's not the answer you're looking for. It's not glamorous, it's petroleum jelly. Petroleum jelly is that substance that is most like the intracellular lipids. It is the only moisturizer that can intercalate itself into the spaces between the corneocytes. But people don't like petroleum jelly. Hence, we have a thousand other variations, none of which work as well, but are more aesthetic. They smell better, they look better, they don't stain your clothing, you know, they don't stick paper to your fingers. They're basically better aesthetics. So. Normal transepidermal water loss is somewhere between 12 and 14 milligrams per minute per centimeter squared. That's what we normally lose. Disease states it's higher than that. So in order to trap that water in the body, in order to moisturize the skin and allow barrier repair to occur, we can use occlusives, we can use humectants, and we can use hydrocolloids. That's it. Every one of those thousand moisturizers in the marketplace uses one or more of these mechanisms to moisturize the skin, and that's it. That's it. When you walk down the aisle, you can say, this is an occlusive, this has an occlusive anemectin, oh, this has a hydrocolloid in it, but that's it. There isn't any other way to do it. It's not any more complicated than that. So what are occlusives? Occlusives are oils. They're thick substances that put an oil slick over the skin surface to stop that transepidermal water loss we were talking about. Petrolatum does it better than anything else. Lanolin does it second best. Mineral oil, third best. Vegetable oils. And then a variety of emollients, the most common of which is acetyl alcohol. And I put this one in here because patients will say, I don't want to use that. That has alcohol in it. It's going to dry my skin. They're thinking of isopropyl alcohol. Cetyl alcohol is a thick oil. Alcohol means it has an OH group on it. Not all alcohols are astringents. Many alcohols are moisturizers. Silicone is the newest occlusive to come into the marketplace, and it is found in all oil free moisturizers. And basically, what these substances do is they lower transepidermal water loss until healing can occur. Petrolatum lowers it by 99%. Mineral oil by 50%, vegetable oils, that's like sesame seed oil, grape seed oil, hemp oil, all the new kind of botanical oils that you see in some of the new moisturizers, they lower it by 40%. You can see by far petrolatum is the best, mineral oil is second best, and all those high-priced fancy botanicals, they only work 40% or less. And that's the reason why most products have as their backbone that are moisturizers, occlusive agents, and they contain petrolatum and mineral oil. Now look at glycerin. Glycerin's a great moisturizer, isn't it? It's found in a lot of stuff. I mean, it's the basis for the Neutrogena Norwegian Formula skincare line. It's the basis for Corn Husker's lotion. It's the basis for Christian Dior's Noctotal. So there I've mentioned products that go from $5 to $100 a jar. But look, glycerin actually increases transepidermal water loss. Why? Because it's not an occlusive, it's a humectant. What humectants do is they draw in water. They're like sponges. We have natural sponges in our skin. The one you're probably most familiar with is hyaluronic acid. Hyaluronic acid is what we inject to plump up folds on the face because it draws in water. And glycerin on top of the skin surface, in addition to propylene glycol, sorbitol, Gelatin, urea, sodium lactate, vitamins, and proteins also hold in water. So when you see moisturizers that have all those ingredients in them, the proteins aren't restoring the collagen in the skin. They're helping hold water, and they get rid of wrinkles by pumping up the skin. So what we're seeing here is humectants that can actually increase transepidermal water loss if they're not combined with an occlusive agent. So humectants basically hold water in the skin that is trapped on the skin surface by an occlusive. Hydrocolloids, on the other hand, are large molecular weight substances that put a physical barrier on the skin surface. That's what colloidal oatmeal does. You've noticed the new Aveno line of skincare products based on colloidal oatmeal. What they do is they put a barrier on the skin surface. Or you notice the new protein containing moisturizers. The proteins provide a barrier over the skin surface. And that's all they're doing is stopping water loss by closing the door. Hydrocolloids are the least effective form of moisturization. They have to remain on the skin surface in order to have an effect. So the goal of a moisturizer is to reduce transepidermal water loss to create a barrier for repair. Moisturizers don't heal the skin. They create environments so the skin can heal itself. They make the skin feel smooth and soft, that's what patients love, and they also decrease itching. Now, there's a new concept in moisturization, which is aquaporins. Aquaporins are water channels in the skin, which should be seen in this brick and mortar model of the stratum corneum, but they're not there. Aquaporins are basically pores. They're osmotic channels in the skin itself, and they control water in and out of the cell. When we look at xerotic skin, you're basically looking at a failure of aquaporins. Aquaporins basically regulate our cells so that they don't desiccate and die and so they don't get too full of water and pop. So aquaporins are basically the newest discovery in skin moisturization. Aquaporins are found in all the body structures, but in the skin we focus on aquaporin 3. That is the one that controls water in and out of the cell. Now what's interesting is aquaporins are found in all plants, all amphibians, and all mammals. And mice that are deficient in aquaporin 3 present with atopic dermatitis. So the reason why I wanted to mention this to you is there's more to moisturizers than just putting an oily slick over the skin. One of the most important ingredients that modulates aquaporin transport, which is the newest old ingredient in all of the high-tech moisturizers, is nothing more than our old friend glycerin. Glycerin is actually transported to phospholipase D, which results in a substance known as phosphatidoglycerol, which controls the enzymes of cellular differentiation. Think about that. Xerotic skin has de-differentiated corneocytes. Psoriasis is an abnormality in cellular differentiation where you get rapid turnover, and skin cancer is totally de-differentiated cells. Aquaporin modulation and the ability to improve cellular differentiation through moisturizers is the future of moisturization. Because through moisturization, if you could control cellular differentiation, think about the profound impact you could have on dermatology. And so this is a window into the future with new moisturization concepts moving away from just putting an oily slick on the skin surface to using urea and glycerin. Substances that both modulate aquaporin transport to actually alter the structure and function of the skin. So with that, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about photo protection. Now, there are a lot of sunscreens out there too. And so when you go to the skincare counter and you're looking for a moisturizer, you now know what ingredients you should look for in the formulation. But in sunscreens, it's a little more difficult because many of the ingredients that are present in a sunscreen work for only a short period of time when the skin is exposed to the sun. The way a sunscreen works, basically, is a photon of UV radiation strikes a molecule of sunscreen. That molecule of sunscreen is raised to an excited state because it absorbs all that energy of that photon of light coming into it. What it then does is it releases that energy as heat. And that's why a lot of your patients complain that sunscreens make them feel hot. Because they do, they generate heat. And then the byproducts of the breakdown of the photoprotectant are called photobyproducts. And that photobyproduct can never function as a sunscreen ever again. And so, you know, we used to tell patients you need to replace your sunscreen every two hours because you sweat it away and it gets wiped off. Well, in reality, You need to replace your sunscreen every two hours because it gets used up. The new generation of sunscreens are what are called photostable sunscreens. And this is what a photostable sunscreen is. And this is a sunscreen that does not get used up. You have your photon of radiation strike a molecule of sunscreen. It raises it to an excited state. It still releases the energy as heat, but It transfers that energy to another molecule that gets degraded, so the sunscreen molecule is preserved and then returns to ground state, ready to absorb another photon of energy. These are sunscreens that work by transferring the damage to another substance that undergoes photodegradation, allowing preservation of the sunscreen molecule. This is the newest development in photoprotection, and the oldest new ingredient here is avobenzone. Avobenzone was first released many years ago, but avobenzone rapidly degrades. If you put an avobenzone sunscreen on that's not photostabilized, it is completely used up in five hours. Therefore, a number of companies have developed ways of photostabilizing sunscreens. And you're going to see this being the biggest trend over the next year. One example that's currently in the marketplace is e octocrylene and oxybenzone. This is the technology that's found in Anthelios. XL and Anthelios SX. What they do is they take Ecampsool, which is another UVA photosunscreen, and combine it with octocrylene and oxybenzone that take the photoradiation from avobenzone and photostabilize it. The reason is, is octocrylene, a very common sunscreen, is completely photostable and doesn't degrade. So if you combine a stable sunscreen and a photo unstable sunscreen, together they create a photostable sunscreen. Another way of doing this is by using a chemical known as DEHN, which is 26 naphthalate. DEHN takes the energy from avobenzone and DEHN is the chemical that is degraded. To that, you also add oxybenzone, which is a further photostabilizer. So when patients go to look for a good sunscreen, what we used to tell them is, oh, just pick an SPF 15 or higher. Well, now the AAD is going to change that to pick a sunscreen with an SPF 30 or higher. Is it that the difference between a 15 and a 30 is so significant in terms of UVB protection, which is the sunburn rays of the sun? Absolutely not. The difference is only 1 to 2% in terms of better UVB photo protection. But what the SPF 30 does is it tells you that there is UVA photo protection in there. Because there's no way to get an SPF 30 without having UVA photo in it. But you can make an SPF 15 with no UVA photo protectants. Furthermore, when you get into your higher SPFs, where you get into your 60s and your 70s, there has to be better photo stability. So, the SPF is an indirect way of knowing that your sunscreen is going to work on the skin. So, when a patient comes and tells you, you know, I, I want to use the best sunscreen possible you probably should tell them to use an SPF 30 plus. And if you want really good UVA photo stability, you should probably tell them to use something around a 45 or a 55. Until we get a better way of telling the consumer who walks down the aisle which bottle to pull, we have to use SPF, which is a crude, but somewhat useful way of determining the value of a sunscreen. Now, the other forward thinking thing that I wanted to talk to you about briefly is nanoparticle sunscreens. You probably have a lot of patients coming in asking you, you know, I saw this $200 bottle sunscreen and it had nanoparticles in it. It had nano sized particles in it, but not nanoparticles. Nano sized means that they're very, very small, and this is what nanoparticles look like. And what nanoparticles are, is they are particles that are so small that they have a dimension on one phase of less than 100 microns. The problem with nanoparticles is that they can penetrate the skin. And when they penetrate the skin, they're there for forever. Nanoparticles are what people inhale when they smoke cigarettes, and it's those nanoparticles that get stuck in the lungs that incite the inflammatory response that results in COPD. In the skin, nanoparticles could also be pro-inflammatory mediators, accentuating skin inflammation, which ultimately results in further photo damage. So, nano-sized reflective particles can be used on the skin surface to bounce UV radiation off. And nano-sized zinc oxide is commonly used. It's known as transparent zinc oxide. When you make the particles smaller, you don't get as good an SPF. But theoretically, if this product penetrated into the skin, you could have zinc oxide in your skin for forever if it were true nanoparticle zinc oxide. No one knows what nanoparticles do in the skin. And for that reason, the FDA and the cosmetics associations have recommended that nanoparticles not be used until their skin impact can be more fully understood. So when you guide your patient down the aisle for sunscreens, the thing you want to tell them is to look for the higher SPF products and to look for those that are photostabilized. The photostabilized complex in Neutrogena products is called Helioplex. Helioplex has another name. It's called advanced protection in the Aveeno line. And in the Anthelios line, the advanced protection is called Mexorel. So those are the photostable sunscreens among the large manufacturers. Coppertone products are also photostabilized and they will contain avobenzone, oxybenzone, and octocrylene. Products that contain avobenzone and octocrylene on the ingredient disclosure under the active ingredients are photostable. With that then, let's move on and talk a little bit about anti-aging skin care. And boy, don't you need six days to talk about this category. The newest developments in the understandings of developing products for aging are using gene chips to select ingredients. And The way this is done is you take an ingredient, you grind it up, you put it on cultured skin. Cultured skin is skin that's present in a petri dish. Cultured skin looks just like regular skin except it doesn't have a stratum corneum which is the reason why many products that work well on cultured skin don't work well on your patient's faces. So, you take this cultured skin, you expose it to your novel ingredient X, you remove the broth, you put it on a gene chip, and you look for all the signals that are changed, like upregulation of interleukin-1, downregulation of collagenase, upregulation of tumor necrosis factor alpha, and you look at what this product does and from how it modulates inflammatory mediators and other enzymes in the skin you then get an idea of what this ingredient might do in an anti-aging product. Do you know if it works in an anti-aging product? No, because this cultured skin does not have a stratum corneum. Therefore you have an idea, but you do not know. the most important category of anti-aging ingredients happens to be antioxidants. Whether you get it from soy, whether you get it from green tea, whether you get it from mushroom extract, whether you get it from curcumin, they all are doing the same thing. They're preventing oxidation. What I'd like to do is talk about two ingredients because we're limited on time. I'd like to talk about ferulic acid and I'd like to talk about resveratrol. Two very popular ingredients. Now. If I come to you and I tell you, you know, I'm going to give you the world's best antioxidant to use on your face, and you're going to see the results in 48 hours with smoother, softer, more supple skin, am I really telling you that the antioxidant is going to work? Is it possible for an antioxidant to produce noticeable skin benefits in 48 hours? Well, there's one way you can do and test how good an antioxidant is. You can use the ORAC scale. And many of you have seen products that use the ORAC scale. But the ORAC scale was developed for foods. It was developed by the FDA as a way of determining whether the nutrition content that went into the can of peaches comes out of the can of peaches. Because you know if you don't put antioxidants in the can, your peaches are going to turn brown. And when they turn brown, they have less vitamin A and less vitamin C content. Imagine a banana that you slice and put on the tray, and you get busy with patients, and you come back three hours later. It doesn't look like the same banana. It's turned brown. It's oxidized. And when it's oxidized, it doesn't have the same nutritional value. That's what the ORAC scale is for. Is our skin bananas laying on a tray oxidizing? No, fortunately not, or we'd all be brown very quickly. So. What we then do is we look at other ways of assessing antioxidants. The antioxidants in the body are vitamin E, the primary antioxidant, and vitamin C, the secondary oxidant that regenerates vitamin E. Now, how do we know if a product is really working as an antioxidant? The only way we currently know is through something known as the cell death cycle. The cell death cycle, also known as apoptosis, is when cells prematurely enter cell death when they're lethally injured. And one way of lethally injuring a cell is through oxidative damage. Sun induces apoptosis. So the way that we test antioxidants is by inducing sunburn, in volunteers that we pay, of course. And what we do is we put the antioxidant on their back, then we expose them to UVB radiation and UVA radiation from a solar simulator. We then take a little piece of their skin, and we look for something known as a sunburn cell. A sunburned cell is a dead cell. We then infer that if we reduce the number of sunburned cells after application of this fabulous green tea polyphenol or ferulic acid, we then can say that there was less oxidative damage and the product functions as, as an antioxidant. So now I'm going to ask my same question before. If I came to you and told you that I have an antioxidant and it's going to work in 48 hours by making your skin softer and suppler and smoother. Would you believe me? No, because softer, subtler, smoother skin is well-moisturized skin. I'm talking about the moisturization component. I'm talking about the first part of the lecture. I'm not telling you anything about the antioxidant. Oxidation is damage yet to occur, and so when products say they prevent oxidation of your skin, you know, oxidation occurs over our entire lifetimes, and you really don't see the effect of oxidation for 20 to 40 years, depending upon the amount of oxidative insults mainly sun exposure your skin has received. So no one knows if antioxidants work or not. And we actually can't even do that study. I mean, how could you get someone, enroll them in a study, have them use a product for 20 years, tell them, here's a 20-year supply of cream, come back in 20 years and let me look at your skin? Because you're preventing what you don't know is going to happen. I mean, how do you know what they would have looked like if they hadn't used the skin, the product? So we use sunburn cell analysis to determine if products are working as antioxidants. Ferulic acid is one such product. It's an example. Basically, what ferulic acid does is it prevents the oxidation of cell walls in plants. It's heat-stable, and it also functions as a sunscreen. It's found in rice, wheat, oats, coffee, apples, peanuts, and pineapple. Ferulic acid is the new hydroxy acid, it's of that same category, glycolic acid is no longer used, gluconolactone is also out of fashion. People are now using either lactobionic or ferulic acid, they are exfoliants, they can improve the smoothness of your skin, they help hold water, they provide sunscreen capabilities and they're antioxidants. Absolutely fabulous, I can put this one ingredient in the product and I can tell you that it's going to deliver the world. Unfortunately, most antioxidants work like that. So that's why we're not talking about antioxidants, because they all do the same thing and we can't prove that any of them work. Every single botanical in every product, whether it's Olay Pro-X, whether it's Intuition by Lancome, um, whether it's Estee Lauder's new product, Double Defense, whether it's Total by Christian Dior, every botanical, whether it's Feverfew, whether it's Ginkgo, they're all antioxidants. And the honest truth is we don't know if they work. So why do patients love that product? Because it's a fabulous moisturizer. Now, one last antioxidant that I want to talk about is resveratrol. And the reason why I want to talk about resveratrol is this is a very interesting ingredient which pays the future for cosmeceuticals. Resveratrol comes from grapes. But what resveratrol does is it modulates something known as a sirtuin. A sirtuin is a protein enzyme. And what it does is it prevents the DNA from being damaged. So if you look here, we have some DNA and we have these proteins wrapping around the DNA. When proteins wrap around DNA, that means that that DNA can no longer be read by the body. And it is loss of DNA, in part, that accounts for aging skin. One of the newest theories of skin wrinkling is that wrinkles are due to a clone of cells with damaged DNA that proliferate and produce the wrinkle. So the newest theory in anti-aging is to modulate histones and resveratrol modulates histones. Not only does resveratrol modulate um, histones and sirtuins, but it's also noted that caloric restriction, which is the only way that's been proven to prolong life, also modulates sirtuins. So if you take a yeast organism and you don't feed the poor thing, you increase mitochondrial functioning, you increase sirtuins, and the yeast live longer. If you do the same thing to a mouse, you feed him not enough, You also increase sirtuins, which in mammals are called sirt1. You increase mitochondrial functioning, and the mice live longer. If you feed that mouse a lot of resveratrol, you have the same effect. So what people are now looking at are ways of mimicking the prolongation effects of caloric restriction through something called caloric restriction mimetics. Caloric restriction mimetics come from berries. Specifically blueberries, raspberries, and blackberries. And not the ones that are plump and juicy in the grocery store, the wild ones that are hard and crusty. So the newest anti-aging ingredients that you're going to see are called caloric restriction emetics. They're called anthocyanins. They come from wild berries. And you're going to see wild berry creams and wild berry face masks. And what these attempt to do is not to moisturize the skin. They're not functioning as antioxidants, but they're trying to modulate sirtuins. People are also taking these internally. You'll notice people are taking all these berry extracts. And you'll notice in the GNC store, you can buy resveratrol that comes from Japanese knotweed. This is the future of anti-aging, where we look at ways of not putting things on the skin surface to stop water loss, but we look at ways of preventing damage to DNA... The oxidative structures in the skin that ultimately control how we look and how we age. So as you're helping your patient navigate down the cosmetic counter pathway, remember how soaps work, and that will help you to pick a soap. Remember how moisturizers work, and that will help you to look at their bottle for key ingredients that must be there for it to work. As for the anti-aging arena, remember that all those big botanical names are nothing more than antioxidants, and at this point in time, we have no proof that topical antioxidants work. Therefore, you're back to where we were before. Look at the moisturizing ingredients. Those are the ones that are going to deliver on the 48-hour, better-looking, better-feeling skin. So with that, I'd like to pause for some questions. I wish we had more time to share, but hopefully now you have a little more insight into the science and construction of cosmetics and skincare products. Thank you very much. Yes. Hi,
0: I might have missed it. Uh, do you did you reference or do you have any place for HelioCare oral capsules?
1: HelioCare, you're talking about the uh, fern extract, the polypodium leucomotus. I did not talk about that. That is an oral antioxidant. It is, it is a fern extract. Um, HelioCare was, was uh, being sold by a dermatology company here in the U.S. but I believe they withdrawn that, that product and now you can order it over the internet and it's still widely available in South America and what it is it's an oral antioxidant and they use the same sunburn cell assay that I demonstrated there for you and what they're able to show is if you take the fern extract a half an hour before you go in the sun it provides a half an hour's worth of antioxidant protection so if you're going to use that in a meaningful way you have to take it a half an hour before you go out and then every half an hour on the hour when you're out in the sun. Which is, I'm so glad you asked that question because that points out the problem with taking oral antioxidant supplements. Because there is such a dense vasculature in the skin, when you get that antioxidant in the vasculature, in the arteries, it goes to the skin but it also washes out very, very quickly, which is the reason why you have to take that oral antioxidant every half an hour on the hour to maintain the effect. Yes?
0: Great talk. Thank you.
1: Thank you. So, lac hydrin is often prescribed to folks with real dry skin, and it's a humectant. Does it have any occlusive properties, or would you have to add an occlusive in addition? And then, uh, one other question is where does CeraVe fit in in these categories? Where does what fit in? CeraVe Cereve, okay. All right. Lac hydrin contains lactic acid. What lactic acid does is it digests the protein of the keratinocytes. and when it does that it opens up water binding sites on the keratinocytes and what that does is that allows the skin to rehydrate itself and that's why lachydrin is very good in psoriatic patients and on calluses because when you rehydrate the skin the enzymes that allow the cells to fall apart or desquamate are reactivated. Those enzymes cannot work when the skin is dry. That's the reason why callus is so hard because it doesn't desquamate, it doesn't fall off because there's no water. Once you hydrate it with either lactic acid or urea, water can then hold to the digested protein, hydration occurs, and that's why the callus will then desquamate and resolve. The other question was about ceramine. CeraVe is a ceramide-containing moisturizer. It contains occlusives and humectins, but what the ceramides are supposed to do is they're supposed to get into the intracellular lipids and provide the raw materials for, for the production of additional intracellular lipids. The ceramides actually function more as occlusive agents uh, over the skin surface. They do get into the intracellular lipids, but no one knows if they promote the production of intracellular lipids. There are eight different types of synthetic ceramides. They do not all function the same, and there will be a new CeraVe coming out in about six months where they've added niacinamide and other ingredients to as a cosmeceutical boost to the ceramides. So CeraVe is an excellent moisturizer, very good for sensitive skin, with the ceramides in them, largely to function as occlusive ingredients. Yes?
0: So, do you generally recommend always using a moisturizing cleanser versus uh, one of the
1: Syndet bars for an atopic? Okay, the question is: Would I use a Syndet bar or would I use a body wash? Why right, one of the moisturizing cleansers? Is that or a moisturizing? Yeah, cleanser. is that a, typically okay. the 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 Syndet bars mm-hmm. with synthetic detergents are also Syndets are also found in body washes. Mm-hmm. Not all body washes are depositing body washes. So if you look, for example, at Suave body wash, Suave body wash does not deposit. Um, Dove Nutrium, their body wash, that is a depositing body wash. So as I mentioned, there are syndets that are bars, there are also syndets that are liquids that have no depositing characteristics. So if a product says it's a moisturizing body wash, it probably is depositing. If it says for sensitive skin, it's probably not depositing. And the Bath and Body Works products, like the Mulberry and the Mango, those are not depositing products. Mm-hmm. So you can also have ComBar body washes. For example, Liquid Dial is a ComBar body wash. It does not deposit. It has triclosan in it. It's a liquid version of the bar soap. Does that help you to understand? Great. Um, I have two questions. One is if somebody says that they're sensitive to either avobenzone or helioplex, do you have a different recommendation for a physical sunscreen with zinc or titanium that doesn't have nanoparticles that would be, you know, something to recommend? Yes, there are many patients that are allergic, not so much to avobenzone, but to oxybenzone. And oxybenzone is found in helioplex, and oxybenzone is also found in anthelios. It's interesting to note that you cannot combine avobenzone and zinc oxide in the same sunscreen because the zinc oxide inactivates the avobenzone. And the FDA has a rule that you cannot add additional sunscreen ingredients unless they boost the SPF. So zinc oxide is is found in a variety of sunscreen-containing moisturizers. And one of the ones that, that's inexpensive, that's easy to find, is the Olay Complete Defense SPF 30. If you're looking for a product that has the least number of sensitizers in it, that would be a, what we call an inorganic sunscreen, meaning that it doesn't undergo degradation like organic sunscreens do, like avobenzone's is organic, octocrylene's organic, oxybenzone's is organic. Your inorganic sunscreens are titanium dioxide and zinc oxide. Neutrogena makes an SPF 30 that has micronized titanium dioxide in it, provides excellent protection. Actually it has a higher protective value than what the SPF would lead you to believe because it's a physical block and that product is good for individuals with sensitive skin. You can also use the Vanicream product that also is full of physical blocks. So micronized does not equate to nanoparticles then? No. Micronized means that you take the zinc oxide, you crush it up, and you have particles of all different sizes. And it provides some whitening of the skin, but it also provides better photoprotection. If you take that micronized Particle and you crunch it up even more, and you put it through a filter, you get microfine. And zinc oxide is usually used in its microfine form. And it does not produce as much skin white. And that's why microfine zinc oxide is found in your sunscreen-containing moisturizers that are more elegant. Your titanium dioxide is usually only found in your beachwear products. And then if you take those microfine particles and you crush them again, you can make them nano-sized, which is your invisible zinc oxide. And if you crush them even more, then you get your nanoparticles. Okay. So, can I ask two more questions? Sure. Sorry. Are you familiar with, there's a website, um, Environmental Working Group, put Very together EWG? Very much AWG so. And... me a lot of grief. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you don't recommend people look at that website? No, I think that's a good website to look at. Uh, what what, what um, basically this group does is they look at ingredients, and they look to see what the effects of those ingredients are. And one of the ingredients that they've come down on are the naphthalates, the phthalates. Now, you'll notice in that, in that helioplex, one of those is a phthalate. And you'll notice in every single bottle of fingernail polish on the market today, there's a phthalate in there. Phthalates are used as preservatives, and phthalates are used as curing agents in the film in nail polishes. And it's impossible to make a nail polish without a phthalate. So the question is, is if you take a mouse and you feed it nothing but phthalate, day in and day out, and he gets cancer, is that relevant to the nail polish that you put on your fingernails that you don't eat, hopefully, and where there's only a very small amount of phthalate in it. So the problem with what the environmental group is doing is they're, they're taking ingredients that are necessary for product formulations and extrapolating from animal models, where the animals are eating the stuff, to humans. I do think they're they're performing an important role, but one of the things they came out and said is they said that many sunscreen ingredients cause breast cancer. Uh, Most notably, oxybenzone. Well, oxybenzone is one of the most important UVA photosunscreens. Oxybenzone is also the photostabilizer in all photostabilized avobenzone formulations. It is very much in sunscreen formulations. It would be impossible to make a broad-spectrum sunscreen without oxybenzone. So now you have to ask yourself, you know, what is the risk-benefit ratio? Should you put on a beachwear sunscreen with oxybenzone in it if you're going to be indoors all day? The answer is probably not. Should you cover your whole body with it? Probably not. You should just put it where you need it. Should you use it on the days that you're going to be outside a lot? You probably should. Should you drink the bottle of sunscreen on a daily basis? (laughs) Probably not. So, you know, when you ask yourself about all the chemicals in the environment, you have to take a step back and look at them realistically. Would I cover my entire two-month-old child where the body surface area to weight ratio is very high with oxybenzone? Absolutely not. Would I put it on my face when I go on vacation three times a year? Absolutely. So I think as with everything in life, it's everything in moderation and to look at everything in the context in which it's being used. Thank you. You're welcome. (coughs) One more question. Last question. Yes. My question is a lot of my patients are concerned about parabens and I think this plays into the same thing as the phthalates, but what do you tell your patients about parabens? Okay, that's an excellent question too. If you take away parabens, which are some of the most important preservatives, and if you look at almost every product in the marketplace, you'll find that of those, probably 75% of them have parabens. They have methyl and ethyl and usually one other paraben as well. So if you take the parabens out, you have to replace it with something else. So you replace it with something known as cathon-CG, which is methylchloroisothalazolinone. And I got up this morning and said that 10 times so I could say that to you. (laughs) (laughs) But cathons are some of the most highly allergenic preservatives in the marketplace. As a matter of fact, cathons have been removed from most Levon products, and in Europe they only allow them to be used in hair conditioners and other rinse-off products. So now you take out the parabens, which may or may not be an issue, and now you put in a potent allergen. Or you put in one of the other preservatives that are formaldehyde releasers and now we have trouble with all your formaldehyde releasing patients. Parabens have an extremely low incidence of contact allergy. They're probably the safest and one of the most effective ground positive and ground negative preservatives in the marketplace today. Is it worthwhile taking out parabens and putting in a potent allergen in formulations that are used in moisturizers, for example, that stay on your face all day? It's an important question. I personally think not. But I do think that people are looking for alternatives to parabens. They're looking for botanicals, for example, with wonderful preservative properties. One of the most important botanical preservatives is eugenol. How many of you have looked at your patch test tray? It's a clove extract. Eugenol is on the patch test tray. So there's a a good and a negative to everything. And part of being a dermatologist and part of, you know, being a dermatology PA is to help your patients better understand and navigate this extremely confusing marketplace. And if I've given you a few ideas to take home with you, then I feel that today's talk has been successful. Thank you very much. Thank you.